Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Kim McLaren. Before I introduce Kim, thank you all for tuning in and please chat with us during the interview. Your comments will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into our conversation. And if you enjoy the episode, please also consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. Finally, one more announcement. Um, please join me for a special workshop on May 8th. It is called Prioritizing Your Craft for Writer Moms, or in Liz Lenz's uh, words, labias to the wall, ladies. And in this workshop, we'll, we'll share strategies for prioritizing our craft, explore examples set by other writer moms, um, do writing exercises and share our prose, and you'll leave the workshop energized and armed with a plan for recommitting to your creative work. The link is on the Writer Mother Monster website under classes. And without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Kim. Kim McLaren is the author of three critically acclaimed novels, The Memoir, Divorce Dog, Motherhood, Men, and Midlife, and Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Life and Love. Her most recent book is a critical and personal examination of a favorite novel, James Baldwin's Another Country. Kim's nonfiction writing has appeared in The New York Times, Glamour, The Washington Post, Slate, The Root, and other publications, and she's a former staff writer for The New York Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Greensboro News and Record, and The Associated Press. She's an associate professor and graduate program director of the MFA in Popular Fiction Writing and Publishing in the Department of Writing, Literature, and Publishing at Emerson College. And she has two children, ages 21 and 23. She describes writer motherhood in three words as contradictory, depleting, enriching. Now, please join me in welcoming Kim McLaren. Hi, Kim. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Laura. Nice to be here. Thank Hi. you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I want to start by asking you about the three words you use to describe writer motherhood. Take us through contradictory, depleting, and enriching. Um, well, those were off the top of my head because it was an intriguing question that you asked me. So um, let me see. Um, I do think, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm in a my children are grown, so I mm -hmm. don't. I don't process this in the same way I did when they were young. So in thinking about motherhood and writing, um, I cast myself back into how I felt when my kids were young and I was trying to write. And the first word was contradictory because um, motherhood requires a pr being present, being being available, being self self-sacrificing. Um, and being a writer requires being absent from other people because you need to be by yourself, um, being unavailable to other people because you have to prioritize your craft and quite frankly, being selfish. I think writing is is um, is in a way very selfish. All art making is in, a, in the best way um, in that um, you have to take time by yourself to create your best art. And so it's, I always found it very contradictory. And I, when, it, when my kids were young, I would just, I remember reading the Stephen King um, 
memoir, I forget the title of it, in which he said something like, sometimes you just have to go in the study and shut the door. And it just it infuriated me because I thought, oh, if I go in the study and shut the door, somebody's calling child services. Right. You know, because <laughs> my children are on the other side. So it's an easy thing for a man to say, but it's different. So contradictory in that the requirements and the demands are sometimes at odds um the second one what did i say depleting <laughs> depleting um, yeah it, it, i found it depleting i found trying to be both things um to the best of to to the standard to which i guess i was holding myself and which i felt i was being held um i found it depleting i found it exhausting that's what my third novel is about my third novel is about this jump at the sun that's what it's all about and that novel actually um helped me reconcile all the challenges of being a writer and being a mother. And, 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 and that leads to the third one in that, you know, I was able to use the challenges and use the experience and use, um, what it, all of that in my art, which is, which is what is the great thing about being a writer, you know, right. No matter what you're going through, you can turn it into your, to your work. So, so yeah, so challenging, depleting, but also enriching, fulfilling. You know, I could have put a lot of third words at the end, nurturing, all the words people use. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted to acknowledge that other side because I think often it's not acknowledged. That's, that is also what the third novel is about is the, you know, the sanctification of motherhood and the, the refusal to acknowledge that sometimes it's kind of sucky, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard. <laughs> yeah, hard but joyful, and it can exist as both at, sometimes at the same time. At the same moment, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that novel and how you worked through um, those issues and questions for yourself in the writing of it. Well, it's, uh, you know, this is, it's funny because it's, I mean, it's so long ago now, I can barely remember, but at the time it was so, um, overwhelming. I didn't, that was my third novel. And I had an, another idea originally. I started writing a different novel and I just couldn't, you know, my kids were, I don't even remember how old they were then. I'd have to think, but they were still pretty young and still pretty much at home. Um, certainly, I think my son was probably at home. My daughter might have been in kindergarten or first grade, but I, you know, they were at home. Um, <laughs> and I was at home with them and and I just couldn't, and I had moved to a new city. I was just new to Boston, so I didn't have a lot of family. I didn't have a lot of help, didn't have a lot of support. And so it was me. It felt like it was me. I was married, but my husband was working. Um, so the novel evolved out of my experience because the other novel that I was trying to write, I just couldn't get it done. And so I thought, well, let me at least start, you know, pouring what's happening to me now into a book. And it turned into that novel and that character. And, um, it was great. I actually think it's one of my better novels because it's so raw and because I was honest about it and I was in the thick of it. Um, and it's not just about me or about motherhood, but I mean, I thought about my mother. It's also about my mother and my grandmother and generations and black women, motherhood in particular and the demands and expectations and all that kind of stuff. So once I started thinking about it, I thought this is very rich material. Let me pour everything into it. And, um, I guess I was able to get it done. I don't remember much of much of my honestly, much of my children's um, childhood. It's you know, it, it was both. It's funny you you know you both remember it impeccably, and a lot of it's a blur. So uh, you know, I couldn't tell you much about the writing of that novel other than I was able to get it done, and because I know because it exists. That's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, the the proof is there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You talked a little bit about the expectations you had for yourself um, as a mother and how um, 
let's look at your word again, depleted, about how that can make you feel depleted sometimes when you feel weighed down by the expectations, um, either the expectations that you set for yourself or that society sets for you. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What kind of mother did you, um, what was the standard you were holding yourself to? Um, I guess, I mean, let's see. I think it was acknowledging my mother was a, was a, my mother, my mother's life and my life are very different. My mother, um, raised five children by herself, right? After she divorced, right? After my parents divorced and my father was not as financially supportive as he should be. So we were very poor, very poor. Um, and that was a struggle for her. And she did, she did a tremendous job, um, given what she had. Um, but there were deficits in terms of, um, love, you know, or at least outward expressions of love and, and engagement and all that kind of stuff that we would now consider, you know, good motherhood. Um, and it, it, you know, and so I just, I'm speaking very carefully here because it's not about blaming her or judging her. She did the best she could with the tools she had and she did a t- tremendous job. She got us all safely to adulthood, which, um, was her goal and her accomplishment. And for a black woman raising five children in the South at that time period, that's a hell of an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all actually productive, you know, you know, contributing members of society, right? You know, my one sister's a nurse, another's a head of public health. I mean, you know, we're pretty accomplished. Um, so she did a good job. Um, but I felt, so I felt both the obligation to do that good a job. Um, but at the same time to try to make up for the, Right. The deficits that I felt as a child. Right. Um, at the same time, quite frankly. Right. I'm operating at that time. My ex-husband's white and I'm living in a little white suburb and I'm operating in a white world. And so the the standards that I am surrounded by are are different standards. And it's a complicated question. I want to get into it too much, but like the kind of. um you know, go to every soccer practice, right. And stand on the sidelines and cheer for, you know, not just the games, but every practice and, you know, that kind of standard, which was not the standard just generationally that my mother, my mother never went to any kind of art events, right. That, 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 that you didn't go to your child's sports game. That's, that was their job. I mean, you know, it was, it was just ridiculous. It was a ridiculous kind of thing. Right. Um, but, but everybody around me was doing it and, and, um, It was not it's not my natural temperament either. Right. Like I remember once actually driving my kids to a soccer game practice, taking them to the field, then coming back to get in the minivan to do some do some work in the minivan. And somebody said something to me about it. Right. Like, why aren't you on this? You know, I'm like, I mean, I was actually there, but I was not standing on the sideline. So so those kind of middle class white standards. So you had the standards of my mother, those kind of middle class white standards. Um, you had my own kind of, you know, fear that I wouldn't be as loving and as present because of my own, you know, upbringing as the kids deserve. So there was just a hodgepodge of 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 um, demands and expectations from all from all sources, internal, external. Um you know, and finally, at some point, I realized that it was all ridiculous, right? <laughs> like, my only job was to be the best mother I could be. And that's all I could do. And, you know, if anybody, you know, the rest, the rest was, would just follow. And it, it did. And they, I think they turned out okay. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, actually, you're you're already veering into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is now with a little distance from those soccer games and from your kids being small, I'm sure your expectations for yourself have changed with time. Um, looking back, though, at those earlier days, how do you perceive, like, what kind of mother were you? Huh. I was the best mother I could be at the <laughs> time. Right. I mean, that's that's yeah. the answer. Right. I was the best mother I could be at the time. In many ways, I was a damn good mother. I mean, and I tell my kids I have the videotape to prove it. Right. Like I actually last year for their birthdays, I um, took all the old VHS because I was afraid they would you know, disintegrate and put them on. Um, whatever CDs and, and digital. Um, and I was watching through them and there's, you know, there's birthday parties and there's, and more important than that, there's just like random dancing in the living room to REM on a Sunday night. Right. And there's just walking down the street. So, I mean, I was actually far more present and engaged than I remember myself being right. And I was far more giving of myself than I remember myself being. If you had asked me that question five years ago, I probably would have said I wasn't as good a mother as I should have been. I would have been much harder on myself. Mm-hmm. Now, in retrospect, I know not only was I the best mother I could have been, I was actually a pretty damn good mother, right, in many, many ways. I mean, I did everything. I baked cookies. I, I hid Easter eggs. I sprinkled oatmeal on the snow to, so that the, so that Santa's reindeer could eat it and then, you know, went out, went out later and stomped it in the snow so that it looked like the reindeer had eaten. I mean, I did everything. Right. Um, And more importantly, I I think I tried to teach them about who they were. I tried to teach them about the reality of growing up black in this society. I tried to make them understand, to teach them to be proud of their history. I tried to teach them um, to care about other people and not put self self development, you know, to basically to not be to not um, aspire to those. American middle-class white values that can often be so destructive. Um, and I can tell from the, the young people that they are today that I think I, I think I did a pretty damn good job. Um, cause they're pretty awesome young people. Um, and I think they will contribute. They are contributing and will contribute to the world in important ways. And that's all I, I think that's, that's the job. I don't care what they accomplish, although, you know, they're on their way to accomplishing a lot, but who are they as people? They're good people. So I think mm-hmm. I did a good job. It sounds like you did. Yeah, definitely. I think I do. I think you did. Um, we have a question here from Kennedy as Miller, but I think that you just answered it. <laughs> she asks, um, she said she's interested in what you said about your mother accomplishing her goal as a mother. So what would you say some of your goals are as a mother? And again, I think you just, you just articulated them, but is there anything yeah. else you would add to that? Yeah. I mean, my main goal it wasn't maybe explicit then in some ways it was, but it wasn't explicit then, but I can see in retrospect was to raise good human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my main goal. What, what is, what else is there is it wasn't to raise uh, rock stars or entrepreneurs or people who would get into Harvard. Although I have to say my son is at Harvard, mm-hmm. um, um, but it wasn't to raise accomplished people. It was to raise good human beings, caring human beings, because, God, there's so many uncaring human beings out there Um, and to raise thoughtful human beings. um, That's the job to me is to raise good human beings who can stand on their own and make their decisions. That's the other thing I did, um, which, again, five years ago, I might have been uncertain about it. Was I too um, 
I was not a helicopter parent, right? I really wanted to teach my children to to take agency and to take initiative and to and to learn to navigate the world. I think that's the job. Um, and I think I did that. And so those were my goals. Those are my goals as a mother. Um, and, you know, and quite honestly, also to my other goal was to not lose myself in the process, because that's what my mother did to some extent. And it cost her. And it's too bad because she's a finate. She's still with us, thank God. But she could have done so much with her life as a, as a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. So my other goal as a mother was to mother as well as I could without sacrificing Kim. And I definitely did that. Yeah, I hear that from so many people. And in part, that's why I started this series is because that was my biggest fear um, in becoming a mother was the idea of losing myself. And part of that for me was writing because that's how I attach value (laughs) to my to myself in many ways. Is that the same for you? Was writing a big part of what you were trying to hold on to as you navigated motherhood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I, you know, I knew I was a writer before long before I had any interest in having children. In fact, yeah. you know, I wasn't sure until the last minute whether I wanted to have children, but like a writer was who I was from the time since I was six, really. Like I kind of mm-hmm. knew really early that I wanted to write. And so if you ask me to identify who I am, writer would be up there, quite honestly, far earlier than mother. I think of myself as a writer who has children before I think of myself yeah. as, right? I never, honestly, I never defined myself. I, even when my kids were young, I rarely defined myself as a mother. And I certainly didn't define myself as a mom. I hate that term. I'm sorry, but um, I do too. No, uh, okay. I'm a mom. What the hell is a mom? Excuse my French, right? But um, um, so, so yeah, that was a big fear was losing myself as a writer, losing the writer, Kim, um, because then what would I have been? A woman with children, which is important, but, um, you know, a writer was who I am. I mean, I, I, I sacrificed a lot. I did a lot to become a writer, to be a writer. Um, mm-hmm. I worked hard to be a writer. And so to have that just kind of go away because I had children would have been a would have been really hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely get that. Um, were there times when your children were young or even as they were growing up that you felt as though you were losing Kim? Oh, sure. <laughs> yes. Um, I think especially probably and you know, and in retrospect, right? Here's the other thing, right? In retrospect, it's, it's, it's it seems, it seems, overwhelming and and endless that time and then you know as everybody says in retrospect it it goes fast right it was Mm -hmm. it was um but certainly when my children were young and especially young before they went to school right so those years my kids are two kid two two years apart so there were you know what five years or six years when they were both at home or like one or both of them were at home right and you're and i was at home with them i kept my kids at home for the most part they went to preschool later but um it was part-time um so those years, especially, right, it just felt, I mean, because you don't, well, you know, you know, I mean, you're, you know, you don't have time to, like I said before, sit in a study for four hours and, and write or two hours or maybe some some days one hour, right? If you're lucky, one gets a nap, the other one's up 
you know, whatever. Um, so those were definitely times when I, I felt like I was lose, losing. Um, mm-hmm. When they were older and when they went to school, it got easier. Um, but still, there were times because they still took priority and they sh- and they should. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, that that there were I, I was not as productive. I used to tell people um, that my first novel, my first novel, Taming It Down, I wrote before I had children. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I when I first started writing, I would write um, a thousand words a day because I was a journalist. I was used to writing on deadline. So I said, I'm going to write this novel by setting myself a deadline. I'm, I looked up. I looked up how long the average novel is. It's 50,000 words. I said, fine. If I write a thousand words a day. 50 days, I'll have a novel. Right. <laughs> yep. um, and I had taken a year leave from the New York Times to do this. So I had a I had a I had a you know, I had a deadline because I had to go back to the if I didn't write this novel, I was going to have to go back to the New York Times, which I didn't want to do because I was miserable there. So I said, I got to write this novel in a year. So I so I got to write the first draft in three months. And so I set myself a deadline, a thousand words a day. I would sit down every morning and I would not let myself get up until I'd written a thousand words a day. And I did that. Right. I did the first draft in like two months. So. You know, and then I revised it and all that kind of stuff. And then the second novel, I had my daughter and it took me about two years. The third novel, I had my daughter and my son and it probably took me, I don't know, three years, four years. I don't remember. Right. So so you, I could see how this yeah. was going. Right. I need to stop having children. First <laughs> novel, two months. Second novel, two years. Third novel. Right. If I keep having kids, I'm never going to write again. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the, it just meant that there was a real there was a real cost now that it's a cost doesn't mean that it was a bad thing but mm-hmm. it's but it but there was a cost to my productivity to having children that you know mm-hmm. that's just a fact and so i you know i i like to look at things that as they are so and maybe that's not true for all writers i mean tony morrison you know would get up in the morning write you know these amazing novels parent her two kids then go to work full-time as an editor and come home i mean so she was a superhuman right but um but for me there was a cost in productivity and that's that's okay i mean that's okay it's a gift um but it is also true yeah actually i'm interested in the um the distinction between productivity and um i don't want to say quality but the the content i guess because there's a difference right so maybe you're writing less but are you writing um le- are you writing maybe you use the word enriched enrichment are you writing yeah. maybe more enriched even though the productivity has lowered um probably yes i mean i think every right i i think a writer's job is to explore what it means to be human right mm-hmm. and so the more experiences that i have about what it means to be human in all kinds of uh ways manners and capacities then then yes then my writing is inevitably going to enrich and so in that regard absolutely motherhood enriched my writing it taught me a lot about what it means to be human about love about um about self-sacrifice, about curiosity, about how human beings come into the world and, you know, about about how little control. I mean, we like to think we can shape our children and we can to some extent and then you can't write people come with their. Per- so it taught me a lot about, you know, it, it taught me forgiveness for my own mother. Right. Right. I mean, it taught me understanding of my own mother and her her life. Um, so. It enriched me as a human being, and therefore it absolutely enriched 
my work without question. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, that's good to hear. I I think a lot about the whole um, capitalist um, idea of productivity and the sort of white supremacist culture that enforces the idea that you need to do you need to be so productive to be a successful person when yes. maybe you write one book in five years and it's a better book than you would have written um, if you'd written three books in five years, you know? So I, I don't know. I'm trying to reconcile that for myself as well. No, I think that's a, I think that's a very excellent point. I mean, it is, it is a trap. It is a, it is a capitalist protect, trap that you're only as good as what is what, you know, your latest product, right? Mm-hmm. What you're producing. Um, and so, um, that is, that is fair. And it is also true that in the market driven system, a writer, um, who is not, you know, I remember my editor used to say, you're supposed to be producing a novel for every two years, right? You know, and you yeah. should do that because you'll lose your readership, right? They, they kind of induce this kind of anxiety. Um, and that's unfortunate and it is, it is counterproductive. Um, at the same time, it is also true. Um, the American public has a very short attention span. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so both things are true. So, so I, productivity and the, in, in the sense of this capitalist demand that you should always, that your value is wrapped up in what you're producing is not, is not good or healthy and it's wrong. Um, mm-hmm. productivity for me in the sense of, I also do believe that, um, like athletes, like, um, scientists. I, I, I personally believe like any, anybody who is, um, immersed in their, in their field, you have years when you're going to be at the peak of your mm-hmm. abilities. And so what, for me, what I meant by productivity is that I, it, I, it would be good to produce the best things I can while I'm at the peak of my productivity, right? Does that make sense, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? that makes sense, yeah. Um, you know, I can, the good thing about writing is you can keep writing, but I'm already starting to see, I'm 56, 57, I, sometimes I forget, um, that some stuff, I'm, I'm less, I'm less, I, I'm approaching, I feel about writing in a different, I don't feel as compelled, mm. honestly. I don't feel mm-hmm. as compelled um, to write as I used to. And so... I'm I'm trying to figure out what that means. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. So, what did it feel like before? What did the compulsion feel like? I I felt like I had to write or die. I mean, okay. I really have felt that, you know, in my in my youth, in my twenties, in my thirties. That you know, um, and I think part of it was probably for me, writing was a lot of things, but one thing it was was always listen to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, as Joan Didion said, right. It's a way of imposing yourself. Um, and it was a way of making a world that I felt was hostile to me and, and wanted to render me either invisible or dead or both, um, a way of making that world acknowledge me and deal with me. Um, and so it felt necessary and, um, just, you know, like breathing, it was just necessary. Um, and it, it doesn't feel that way anymore. And maybe, you know, I think that's probably coming with age and coming with, um, um, quite honestly, less belief that it makes a difference in changing this society. I think I used to believe you could change America. I don't know that I believe that anymore. 
Um, I'm sorry to say that, but I think it's true. So, so I don't know what's wrapped up. Like I said, I'm, I'm currently figuring this out and I'm writing an essay about it. Um, um, about why I don't, might not want to write anymore. Why I might retire from writing. Right. Yeah. Um, um, so I'll write an essay about it and see what I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Still writing to figure out about yeah. your yeah. will to write. Yeah. Yeah, and figuring out, and as, and as Vivian said, I write to understand what I, what it is I thinking. That was mm-hmm. the other reason writing was so necessary for me because it's in the process of writing that I understood what I thought and what I feel and what I believed. Um, and now I think I have a, I think I know more about those things without having to write. So. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And actually it leads into a question here from Lucette Tulp. Hi, Lucette. Um, and, You've in part already answered this. She says, how have you ever lost desire to write? If so, how did you manage? If not, how did you maintain the will and desire to continue writing? So um, it sounds like you're grappling with that right now. Uh, But were there times? Yeah. Earlier when my kids were young, did I lose the desire? No, I don't remember losing the desire back then. I remember losing the energy (laughs) to do it, right? (laughs) You know, the time and the energy. But I always had like a million things I wanted to write. Um, I've never been a person who, I mean, I teach writing, right? I'm a professor of writing. And so I, I tell my, my students ask me about writer's block and I say, I don't personally believe in writer's block. I mean, I don't, I don't believe in it. Um, I believe if you're, if it's not coming, it just means you don't know enough. It depends on what you're writing. If it's, if it's your novel, maybe you don't know enough about your characters. Maybe you don't know enough about the questions that they're asking. Maybe you don't know enough about the world in which they're building. Um, if it's an essay, maybe you, maybe you don't know enough about what you're trying to investigate. When I feel, um, stuck, I'll say stuck, not blocked. Um, I go for a walk or hike or go out and garden or do something physical. And almost inevitably, I'm telling you 90% of the time it works, right? So, so, so all of which is to say, I don't really believe in writer's block. It's just a kind of part of the process. Um, and so I never, there were times when I was stuck or were times when I couldn't figure out, but I didn't, but that, that didn't mean I didn't desire to write. This is actually the first time in my life that I've lost the desire to write. That's why I'm talking about it, because it's it's, yeah. you know, it's surprising. Right. It's like, what is this? You know, but again, the good thing about being a writer is that you can be curious about what's going on instead of frightened by it. Um, so I'm I'm curious about it. So I don't know what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to. I'm going to write about it and see if I can figure out what it is. And it may be that I've said everything I had to say. I mean, that may be that may it may be as simple as that. And that would be OK. If I've said everything I had to say, then I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll open a bakery or something. I can do other things. Right. I mean, I actually do other things. Right. I like baking. I like sewing. So, you know, it'll be OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about um, changing the world. So I'm wondering if. um well, first, when did the sort of waning of interest in writing happen? What, did it coincide with this last year that you and I were talking about before the interview started about just all of the all of the things that we're dealing with right now? Do you think that has anything to do with it or is that separate? It's a that's a good question. I mean, I think that definitely has part of it. I mean, my write has always my writing, my work has always been um political in this little p sense right um you know i think again referencing um you know i referenced joan didion before i referenced the george orwell essay why i write and orwell says you know 
um, putting aside the need to make money, put that way aside. Um, people write for one of four or five reasons. And I forget, you know, one of them is aesthetic pleasure. Some people just like words and language. And, and one of them is, um, I forget the other one, but one of them he says is, is trying to, um, show either the way you think the world ought to be, right? Or the way the, you know, or trying to make people understand the way the world really is, right? Political in that sense, right? Trying to write something. And that has always been me. I mean, my writing, um, there are other reasons too, but that's the primary impulse for me has always been, I believe, you know, I'm seeing stuff that I don't understand why everybody else is not seeing it. And why don't you guys see this and then fix it, right? Um, so, in the past, and it's not just the past two years or even past four years, but, you know, as I've grown older and I've seen cycle after cycle in this society of, you know, I don't want to get into all of it, but racial oppression and police brutality and and white backlash, quite frank, frankly, what it is, is black progress, white backlash, black progress, white backlash. You know, if you after you see a couple of those cycles, you start to understand, OK, so this is this is. This is America. This is the cycle. Um, and all the pleading and all the, I mean, better, far, far, far better writers than me. James Baldwin, you know, told us all of this, pleaded with us, pleaded with America, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here we still are, you know, 20, 30 years after his death. So um, I, I guess I, it would take an act of, it would take a, an act of faith greater than I have to believe that um, things will change. I mean, I guess maybe I, mean, I still hope they'll change. Um, so, so, so that, that's, that's part of it, right? If, is, is, if I always wrote with the belief that what I wrote mattered mm-hmm. um, and that's, I mean, I'm saying this, I know people are going to be like, uh, I do still believe it matters, but I guess I guess I also hoped it would change things, as I said, and I don't believe it has changed anything. So so then the question arises, why why keep writing? You know, again, I could be planting a garden or, you know, um, yeah. baking some bread and feeding people or, you know, something. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly grappling with this right now. So I'm, what I'm saying to you is all very raw and very yeah. un, unformed. Um, but it's but it's the truth. Yeah. How would how would you as Kim change if you stopped writing? If earlier you said that part of what what makes up your identity is that you're a writer. What does that mean? Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Well, that's the the good news is that 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 again my sense of self and identity has has shifted. Right. I mean, when I was a twenty or thirty and even forty, um, that was a huge part of my identity. Um, and it still is part of my identity, but at this point, it's a part of my identity that will always be intact. Even if I, if I never write another word, honestly, I can still say I'm a writer. I mean, I got a shelf full of books and a bunch of, you know, um, essays and magazines. So if I never write another word, that part of my identity still remains. Um, but it becomes less, less vital. Um, you know, my identity as a, as a wife, as a mother, as a, as a, as a friend, as a person in community and connection with other people, relationships become more important as I, as you get older for my, for me, um, you know, understanding that, you know, our time on this earth is limited. Um, I'm already going to leave behind these books. They're either gonna, you know, go the way that most books go, which is into obscurity or, 
or hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll remain. And as James Baldwin said, um, when, when it all comes to ruin and the young people are digging in the rubble, looking for something to begin again, they'll find my work and use it to begin again. That's what Baldwin said about he hoped for his work. Um, I, that's my hope for my work is that when it all comes to ruin, and I think it will, um, people digging in the rubble will find it and use it to begin again. Um, but at this point, that's, that is what it is. So I guess this, to answer your question, I'm being very long winded here. Um, yep. um, my sense of myself would not at this point change because Kim is now, I don't know. I, I'm just, Kim is, Kim is just fully baked at this point. Right. So there's no, <laughs> There, you know, the shape. I am the shape I am, right? The cookie is is fully baked, and and so that's it's it 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 wouldn't it wouldn't change in the way it would have twenty years ago. Yeah, I think you do need to open a bakery <laughs> if you're a cookie. I, and... I've, I've gotten really really good at baking bread and cakes. Yeah. I can say that, and you know what? I I love it because, um, and it's good for me as a writer too. It's it's different, right? It, it's 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 tactile and it's it's concrete <laughs> you begin and you end right mm-hmm. unlike writing right which is endless right um mm-hmm. and it's nurturing you can feed people and people love it and they respond and you can see it and it's in some ways it's it's a perfect complement to writing because it's 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 just not as writing can just be so open ended, especially when you're writing a novel or a book. It just takes forever. And, you know, you can work all day and people say, what did you do? And you're like, well, I wrote. And they're like, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you got to show for it? If I bake all day, I got something to show for it. Right. You can see it. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I've, I've really gotten into baking. I really love it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, have your kids read your books? Um, you know, I don't know because they don't talk about it with me. Um, I can guess that my son probably has not. I think he just thinks it's too weird, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my daughter, I think, has read um some of my books, but I think I think it's hard for them. And and I mean, I I have given them all books. I've signed them. I have them for them. But we haven't. It's not. You know, I, I think they're still they're still young enough. They're young adults, very young adults, new adults, um, and they're still figuring out who they are and where they stand. And my my hope and my guess is that they will read it later when they're kind of there's some distance from, you know, they have to make that transition from seeing me as their mother to seeing me as Kim, as a person, as a writer, as a, a person who has a whole life. And I think they're just making that transition now. And I think they prefer not to, <laughs> you know, understand that I have all these, you know, I mean, my books have, they deal with grown up stuff, sex and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I don't think they really want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, how has your relationship with your kids changed as they've started to see you as a whole person separate from, or at least connected to mother? Um, I think it's been, I mean, I think it's a, it's a transition. Um, I have, I think, um, I think when they were younger, they might have wanted a more traditional mother, um, you know, traditional, they want, might have wanted a mother who, um, who revolved her sense of self around them more, mm-hmm. Completely. Again, I was very 
adamant about not doing that, right? I, I kept working. I, I taught. I was teaching. Once they were in college, once they were in college, once they were in school, I, you know, I was working and I kept writing and teaching and, and speak public speaking. I do a lot, right? Um, so I think when they were younger, they might have wanted a mother who was more like, you know, you know, you're too young to know Ozzy and Harriet, but you know what I mean? Like that, you know, I don't know what the contemporary reference would be. I don't watch TV that much anymore. Um, I think now, again, as they are turning into young adults that they, I, I think, I mean, you'd really, the short answer is you'd have to ask them, but I think um, we can talk now. We have great conversations about the issues that I'm passionate about the stuff I have been writing about, about racial justice and, and, um, you know, um, black liberation. And, um, and so now we can talk about those things, um, as adults. And I think they often, you know, come to me with questions about them because they know that they're, you know, this stuff I've, I've invested time and energy into it. So I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah. Have those conversations changed your perspective on the issues that you've been writing about for so long? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think I, I, it's hard to say. I don't know that those conversations in particular have, I think, because and the reason I say that is because I also teach young people. I teach people who are mm-hmm. my kids' age, so I'm in conversation with young people all the time. And those, so those conversations collectively have have exposed me to things that I was not aware of, and opened my eyes about things, and and made me think about things differently. Or I, I wouldn't say differently, but they've expanded my my understanding. Um, simply because this generation is dealing with stuff that right is different and yeah. and i'm and I am aware of that, and so I do take that into consideration, and that does expand my consciousness so which I think is good yeah, um can you give me an example of one in particular maybe like one thing that they're dealing with that is different from from your generation and how it's caused you to think about that issue um well, I think in, in terms of in terms of racial issues in general, and I see this with my kids and with students that I that I teach, um, I think students of color and and in particular black students of this generation, young people of this generation, came of age with an expectations of equality and justice that I didn't come of age with, and I think that actually makes it harder for them. I think that's why there was so much, you know, shock and outrage at George Floyd. I mean, there should have been shock and outrage anyway. But I see I see in young people, black black people in particular, not only anger and frustration, but a woundedness Mm -hmm. um, that I think, quite honestly, did not exist in people of my age because we didn't expect I I didn't expect to be (laughs) I didn't expect to be loved quite honestly, by America, right? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go into white spaces and I've lived in and worked in white spaces all my life, you know, Duke University, Philip Exeter, you know, every New York Times, every place I've ever worked is a white space. Um, but I never entered those spaces expecting to be welcomed and loved. Um, 
by people of my children's age and my students' age often do enter those spaces expecting to be welcomed and loved. And therefore, when they're not, it is devastating in a way that it wasn't personally devastating for me. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yeah. And so I didn't realize that. And that, so this is something that I have learned. I, I would often be like, why, why are you guys so, you know, my students would say, and this is really more my students than my kids, but my students would would say that they were really hurt and they cry and crushed by, you know, some racist comment by some professor or some racist statement or some lack of some microaggression, whatever. And I would say, yeah, that's outrageous. It's messed up. But like, why are you why are you hurt by it? Like anger, I can understand outrage, but hurt. Um, and they explained it to me. And then then I'm like, oh, I now I understand. So so those those that's what I mean about like I, I have. It has broadened my consciousness to because their experience is different from my experience and I have to honor their experience. And I, it's, I feel very sorry for their experience because it's in some ways it's worse. Right. It's worse mm-hmm. because um, my you know, our parents taught us. My mother taught me. Don't expect to be, you know, don't expect to be loved. You're going there to get your, you know, get your degree, get your job. You know, you're going there for business. And then you come in home to be loved. Don't expect to be loved there. Right. Um, and so in some ways we were protected in a way that I think this generation was not. If, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's 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 um, that's one example. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Um Tell me a little bit. Sorry, there's an echo here. I I hope you guys can't hear it, but um, just in my microphone. Oh. But tell me a little bit about um James Baldwin's Another Country, and your most recent book. Oh, so that is part of the my um. There's a small publisher, really wonderful small press called um, IG Publishing out of New York. Um, they published my collection, Womanish, um, and they have a series called Bookmarked. Um, which is about and in, in which writers write about a book which left a mark, right? So bookmarked, very cute. Um, and so they asked me to write about a novel that that meant a lot to me, and I picked Another Country because it's my favorite James Baldwin novel. And it was an interesting experience to, you know, I read it many many years ago, so it was an interesting experience to go back and read it. This this ties into what we're saying about, you know, you change and you grow, right? Um, to read it again and to read it. Critically, you know, when I read it the first time I read it as a reader, right? I loved Mm it. Um, and this time I read it as a writer and as a critic, really, or a literary critic. Um, and so that's what this book is. It's an exploration of that. And it it weaves in, you know, some personal memoirs, history and connection, like that kind of stuff. Um, but along the themes that are explored in that book, which are masculinity and, and black womanhood and, um, sex, sexuality and sex and race relations, right? And, and the possibility of connection between all of those things. So, um, it was a really, it was a, it's my first book of literary criticism, right? I'm not a, I'm not a PhD. I don't have a PhD in literature, although I do teach, I have been teaching some literature classes. And so, um, it was a really wonderful opportunity to, to exercise those different muscles, um, which is different than writing novels and different than even writing an essay, right? Writing fiction, writing nonfiction and writing criticism. Um, these are different. So, um, so I, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I think it was, I think it's really interesting. 
Yeah, actually, let's talk a little bit about the different types of writing that that you do and have done. Um, I'm just looking at the list here in your bio. So you've got novels, you have memoirs, you have um, critical and personal examination, um, the James Baldwin novel. You've you're a journalist um, and you ghost wrote a book um, with the daughter of Malcolm X. Um, so tell me just a little bit about all of those different types of writing. Where did you start? Like, what, where, where was your entry point into writing? Um, I've also written a one-woman play. Um, a one-woman play, I, too. <laughs> yeah, I just I wrote that. Actually, I turned my my memoir, Divorce Dog, I turned that into a one-woman play. And um, I'm actually, that's in development right now. Hope to Hopefully, it'll be coming to the stage, um, possibly in Connecticut. I'll let you know. Um, Please do. Yeah. So very soon in Hartford, I'm hoping. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I think I, I always, in my, when I was, when I was younger, really up until, I don't, I don't know the age, but until middle age, I, I consider myself a novelist first and foremost. Fiction was my first love. Um, and that's what I wanted to do and that's what I wanted to be and that's what I wanted to write. And that's the first thing I published. I published a couple of short stories, um, early on, I never considered myself a short story writer. I think they're, I think they, I do think they're different muscles. It's just me. I think it's like, you know, sprinters versus marathoners, right? You know, some people can do both, but most people are going to be better at one or the other. Um, and I was never good at sprinting short stories. I've never really gotten the short story thing, although I would love to. Um, and I may do that now because it's easier to write than novels. But, um, I, so I consider myself a novelist and I wrote, um, and published my first novel. That was my first major work. So I, 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 I consider myself a novelist for a long time. And then I, I wrote essays. I turned to nonfiction, um, really out of self-preservation. Quite frankly, I needed a book for tenure. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. I needed to produce a tenure book and they <laughs> wouldn't consider my three novels because I, I had already published them before I went on the tenure track. Um, and so it was easier to write these essays. I had published a couple of these little essays, but I someone asked me to put together a collection and, and I just discovered that I actually liked nonfiction. I, I'd avoided it for a long time um, because I didn't want anybody to think I was writing about myself and because I didn't want people to focus on whether it was real or not. I wanted people to focus on truth. Right. I think I think fiction, you can tell a truth that is bigger than what's real. Right. Mm -hmm. I try to make that distinction between reality and truth. Um, and I was more interested in truth. Um, but then I realized that you could tell a truth in nonfiction, too, in essays, um, in a way that even though you appear to be writing about yourself, you're really writing about or, or about or about some subject. You're really writing about something bigger and more um, universal. Um, and so I, I actually really like writing essays now. I'm, I mean, I, I find them very there. It's just focused. They're like they're like this, like little ways to hit a subject and, and then get out of it. Yeah. Um, and. And so, yeah. And so, and now I, and then I wrote that play, which is fun. I don't think I'll write any other plays. Playwriting is a whole different monster. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I would do that. And the ghost writing is just, um, and co-writing the book with Ilyasa Shabazz was actually co-writing because my name is on that book, but I've done other ghost written books where my name is not on it. And I can't tell you. Who <laughs> they are. Um, and the, that was the, the one with Ilyasa Shabazz was, was, because she was Malcolm X's daughter and I want, I, you know, I adore Malcolm X and Maya and I, so I wanted to help out. And the other ones have been um, either for the experience or quite frankly, for the paycheck. It's a great way to make a paycheck. Um, and I think more writers should, should get involved in it. Um, 
and it's interesting, you know, you get to, you learn too, you learn that celebrities are very self-involved, um, and more so, more so than writers, which is kind of, which is saying something. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. yeah. Just generally, um, with ghostwriting and then with co-writing, do you meet in person? Like, what's the process of doing that? Does it depend on the person? It depends on the person. You, you most certainly. I mean, with with Ilyasa, we we absolutely met in person. With other people, I've met in person. Um, yeah, you 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 spend a lot of time with them. I mean, now you can do it via Zoom. The last one I did, sure. you did it via Zoom. Um, but the the important thing is to spend a lot of time with that person because you're not only you know getting down the story, but you're getting the rhythm of their voice, mm-hmm. right? And and their mannerisms and the way they the way they think. And so yeah, you just spend hours every week. I mean, that's the most important thing is to week to meet weekly, if not daily, depending on you know what your deadline is. Um, and in order to get their voice, you know, it's it's actually good practice for a writer because you really have to put yourself aside and get into you know and and that's useful when you're writing a novel because you really should be doing that with your characters too so it's actually very good training for a writer in addition to being a nice paycheck um um but yeah and it's and it's interesting it's interesting to to again get out of your own head and just really try to understand this person's journey and the best way to tell it the most compelling way to tell it yeah are there difficulties too with putting yourself aside in some ways? Like I imagine if I were listening to someone tell me their story and as much as I'd be trying to capture their voice and their way of, of narrating, I might in my head be writing a novel, you know, novelizing their story right. for myself. Is there some of that going on too? It, I mean, at first it is, but I think you, you quickly after two or three and I've done more than that. Um, you, it, 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 you know, and I think here's where the journalism background came into, mm-hmm. you know, was was helpful too. I had a background in journalism, which kind of is the same thing, right? It's not about you, and it's certainly not about the story you would tell. It's about telling the story before you in the best way that the story wants to be told, right? And in this case, the best way that the person wants to to tell it. Um, so, so it, it 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 there was some of that at the beginning. Um, the more the more challenging thing for me is when the person and this is why I say I'm, I'm I think I'm kind of done with this, too, even though, again, it's a very nice living um, is the more challenging thing is when the person is not as. Thoughtful as you might hope they would be. <laughs> right. So you would ask them a question about something and you really want them to grapple with the question and they they don't want to grapple with the question or they don't they don't understand the question. Um, one of the people I worked with um, is a very um, prominent political person, not actually from this country, um, who achieved a great deal um, and who had to leave her children, literally leave her children behind. And so I asked her if she had any regrets about that, right? And did she have any struggles about that or regrets? And she said, no. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. And oh, I was no. Like, yeah, I mean, and I think she, I believed her too. That's the worst part. Right? <laughs> I don't actually think there were. So, like, how do you write that? You know, because for me, writing is about telling, being honest. Right? If you if you ask me, I will tell you. Right? I mean, and and in and in and in my essays about motherhood, and in and then in Jump at the Sun, I put down all my honest, conflicting feelings about motherhood. You know, if I'm not going to tell the truth, what's the point in doing this? Right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with somebody and they're like, eh, 
that that's frustrating. You're like, wow. It's a short chapter, right? Yeah, right. Okay, next next chapter. (laughs) And since we're coming up on an hour, I think let's end with um, if you could give a message to uh, writer mothers who are listening um, in whatever stage they're in, it doesn't matter. But what message would you would you give them? Give us. Wow. I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not good about giving advice or messages. I, I, I do appreciate you said message. Um, yeah. I, I'd say, um, I don't know. The first thing that came to mind was that, that campaign for, for, for young gay people. It gets better, you know, <laughs> so, um, so part of me is like, I mean, for those who are in the thick of it, cause then when you're in the thick of it, it can seem overwhelming. And, and I do think it's important to say this too shall pass, right? And the, you know, the reason people say that, and it's because it's true, but it also allows you to relax and enjoy where you are. And it is a joy. It is a gift, right? It's a privilege to, to raise these young people. And if you can really, really understand that it really will get better, I mean, that they really will pass, you will be able to get your life and yourself back, um, then you can really relax. So I, I would say that. Um, um, but I would also say, always save a part of yourself. I think that's important, right? And it's it's important for your kids, too. And I think it's especially important, and I'm glad that I did this for our daughters, to yeah. see us not totally, you know, negate ourselves in the service of motherhood. I think that's a gift to you, and it's a gift to your daughter and to your son, too, so he won't have the expectation that his partner will. <laughs> so it's a gift to our children as well as to ourselves to to love them with everything, to give everything, but all, you know, give 90%, but save 10. Well, I don't want to put, that's not good. Maybe 70, 30. I don't know. I don't want to put a figure on it. Save some for yourself. 90 is not, that's too much. Maybe 70, 30. 75, 25. I don't know. Whatever, whatever, whatever. percentage works for you. Whatever percentage. You, you, you determine. That's up to you. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. This has been such a pleasure and I love that final message and it's been just great talking with you well thank you for having me i really enjoyed it and i'm glad we were able to make it work me too i'll stick around for a second um while i say goodbye to the listeners and i'll be right back with you but thank you kim Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us again um, tonight. And as a reminder, you can watch the video again, um, listen to the audio, read the transcript, all on writermothermonster.com. You can also become a patron or patroness by hitting that button on the website and helping me to keep this podcast running. Um, and as a reminder, please also join me for a workshop on May 8th, I think it's the 8th, check out the classes button on the website. Um, it's for writer mothers, and we will be um, strategizing how, as Kim said, to keep part of ourselves, how to prioritize our writing. Um, we'll read examples of other writer mothers, and we'll just generally um, support one another in pursuing our our work. So thank you all again for joining us tonight, and I will see you on Saturday for another episode of Writer Mother Monster. Good night.